podcasts. Why'd it have to be podcasts? Yes, welcome back everyone to this newest episode of the Silver Screen Podcast. It's been a, a week without an episode, but we are back with another review to coincide with a big release. Believe it or not, we're almost, I think, at episode 50 of the podcast now. But, you know, it's not the age, it's the mileage, isn't it? <laughs> As they say. It's not the years, it's the mileage. Oh, I misquoted that. Ah. <sighs> bad Mike, bad Mike. Anyway, <laughs> so I am your usual host, Michael Wilson. I'm back, as always, in the hosting chair. Uh, I'm joined by my usual co-host, who I will, you know, be asking to throw me the whip or the idol, and we'll see which one he chooses. DK. <laughs> Adios, senor. <laughs> and we are joined by the uh, appropriate, I guess, Marcus Brody to our little group, Stephen Brown, our guest for this week. <laughs> I was going to call myself the boulder, but fair enough, I'll take Brody. <laughs> <laughs> you, maybe you should be our Salah, actually. That's that's kind of a nicer <laughs> role for you. <laughs> so, yeah. But, yeah. Uh, He'll, he'll be keeping an eye out for any bad dates while we do this recording. So if you haven't guessed from all those... <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm real. If you haven't guessed from all those references and, you know, the fact it's written on screen, today, uh, in honour of the release coming up of Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, we are going to be reviewing the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark because that's what it's called on screen, despite people trying to claim it has Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. The so new 4K release has put it back to you, just Raiders. It already is. It's uh, on my Blu-ray release. It still just calls it Raiders, and it does on screen anyway. But yeah, it's weird how a lot of the sets to try and match up don't have that. But anyway, I mean, it's it's you know a nitpicking off to complain, but you know what we're like. We uh, you know. Oh my still... God! Joel's made an early appearance this week. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> we still call 1977 Star Wars Star Wars, and not a New Hope because that's what it was called. <laughs> Ah, nitpicking aside, we're ready to talk all things indie. Uh, so, three of us here have all seen the movie. I think we're all, uh, you know, we all have a bit of a history with it, which we might get into. But first of all, before we start getting into the bigger review sections of the podcast, we always start with a little behind the scenes, which always falls to the purview of DK. So we're all sitting like porkins in a classroom waiting to be briefed. Uh, DK, I know you love me, Mike. There's no need to write on your eyelids. Come on. <laughs> Oh my word! References abound. Um, yeah. I did try to. Uh, I did try to find something to, you know, accompany your behind the scenes section, DK. But John Williams, it ain't. But you know, just this is what I've got to work with, courtesy of uh, Streamyards. So here we go. This is this is the needle drop you've got. So take it away with the behind the scenes. This is a very different Raiders of the Lost Ark, dude. This is like porn territory. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. This is Raiders of the Lost Ars. Yeah, I'm going to say Raiders of the Lost Pork. <laughs> oh, yours is better. I'm on the wrong podcast. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I mean, if you're a huge fan of the Indiana Jones movies, Raiders in particular, then most of this, you know, the Star Wars references, Paul Freeman and the Fly, etc., it'll be known to you. So I'm not going to go into that. But for those of you who have had your head, head stuck in the sand, no pun intended, for the last four decades, there's a few things here that may interest you. Now, George Lucas originally came up with the idea while working on what was then simply called Star Wars. Nice little fly back there. Both he and Spielberg were on vacation in Hawaii in 1977. Spielberg taking time out after finishing post-production on Close Encounters of the Third Kind 
while Lucas wanted to get away from the general release of Star Wars convinced it would bomb. Now, while lounging on the beach that week, the pair began to wonder what they wanted to do next. Spielberg mentioned to Lucas that he'd always wanted to do a James Bond film. Apparently, Cubby Broccoli you know, consistently turned him down for that. However, Lucas promised him that he had that beat with an idea of his own that he had based on the Saturday matinee serials he loved as a child, not to mention, you know, no small influence by the Charlton Heston movie Secret of the Incas, featuring a new character, Indiana Smith named after the Steve McQueen character Nevada Smith from the movie of the same name. Obviously, that name was changed just before shooting on the assistance of Spielberg. Now, Lucas saw the character as a playboy of sorts, more akin to James Bond, which explains some of the more dubious choices in the original script, whereas Spielberg wanted to play up the more academic nature of the character, though briefly pondered making him an alcoholic. Despite the pair of them, Lucas and Spielberg, being attached, the idea was turned down by almost every studio in Hollywood. It was only after some serious persuasion that Paramount decided to take a chance on it. However, even at that point, Spielberg saw it as nothing more than a B-movie. Probably explains why I love it. Now, everyone and their uncle knows by this point that Tom Selleck was offered the role, but had to turn it down due to his commitment to the Magnum P.I. series. But several other actors were also considered for the role, including Nick Nolte, Tim Matheson, Bill Murray, Chevy Chase, and even Steve Martin. I know we've had a good 40 years of Ford in the role, but some of those names, I, you know, I just, I just can't. Doesn't stop there, however. Up for the possible role of Marion were Deborah Winger, Mary Steenburgen, Sean Young, Jane Seymour, and Dee Wallace, who Spielberg cast later as Elliot's mother in 1982's E.T., John Reese davis wasn't the first choice for the role of Salah. That honour went to the one and only Danny DeVito, who was then starring in the uh, successful sitcom Taxi. Unfortunately, like Selick, DeVito couldn't get out of his commitment to the show and was required to drop out, which saw the role ultimately go to Davis. Was it a total loss for DeVito, though, who eventually, like Selick with 1983's High Road to China, managed to bust his adventuring cherry with 1984's Romancing the Stone? Although, you know, nowhere near as successful as Raiders, for a clone, it has its own fair share of fans. Elsewhere, this was Alfred Molina's first officially credited screen role. And while Ronald Lacey turns up uh, turns in a memorable role as the now iconic tote, he wasn't the first choice for the role. Spielberg originally wanted German actor Klaus Kinski. Kinski was less than flattered, however. When turning down the role, he called Lawrence Kasdan's original Raider script, and I quote, a yawn-making, boring pile of shit. Now, the scene where Tote produces a supposed torture device only to turn it into a hanger for his jacket, it's a reused gag from uh, one of Spielberg's rare flops, 1984, which Christopher Lee plays a German officer who intends to torture Slim Pickens aboard a German U-boat. The gag fell flat with test audiences and it was removed from the theatrical cut of that movie, although it can be seen in the deleted scenes. And uh, Spielberg was able to put it to more effective use in Raiders. It's uh, Now, it's all news by now to anyone with more than a cursory interest in this movie that one of the most beloved scenes, the one where Indy shoots the swordsman, was down to Harrison Ford being ill due to the local diet during filming. After failing to get the scene correct due to his being uncomfortable, Ford asked Spielberg why he couldn't just shoot the sucker, with Spielberg agreeing to see how it would play. It's pretty common knowledge at this point. It wasn't just Ford himself that was having these kinds of issues, however, as at some point or other, most of the cast and crew became unwell due to the same issues, the diet. 
One of the only people to avoid this problem was Spielberg himself. Spielberg was apparently so fussy when it came to food that he almost exclusively ate SpaghettiOs during the location shoot. Even so, he still calls it one of his worst location experiences. Now, while filming the plane fight sequence, the wheel of the plane ran over Ford's left leg, tearing the cruciate ligament. Now, wary of uh, Tunisian healthcare, Ford simply opted to wrap his knee in ice when not shooting and carry on. And one of the biggest questions raised among those viewing the movie is just how Indy survives the trip on the German U-boat as it travels to the island towards the climax of the movie. A deleted scene reveals that the sub, as was common practice when not in combat, never actually submerged, with Indy tying himself to the periscope for the duration of the journey. Spielberg thought the scene looked clunky, though, and had it removed, believing the average viewer would not think to deal with the logistics of the setup. God, how little he knew. Uh, however, it did remain in both the novelization and the comic book adaptation. And finally, the finale saw the censors originally reward the movie with an R rating, which is, you know, would have hampered the box office when compared with more family-friendly fare. Not so much the melting faces of Toad and Dietrich, but it was down to Belloc's exploding head, which included uh, some some liver as well as other animal meat. Uh, to accept, you know, to uh, hammer the exploding cranium home. In the end, to secure a PG rating, Spielberg had to add flames around the head during that scene to disguise the god. And that's what I've got for this week. Okay, thank you very much for that, DK. That's knocked out about 20% of my notes, <laughs> which I don't know why I made, as if I doubted that you would know a lot of those things. But uh, yeah. Some interesting facts there, and uh, yeah, I mean, I don't think uh, everyone might necessarily know these things. <clears throat> I will say, once you know that thing about like um, Harrison Ford ad libbing, just shooting the, the sword guy, <laughs> you look at his face, you can see the guy's in pain. That's yeah. a man who that's a man who's been leaking from the anus for several hours. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, everyone just looks like they've had enough, they're exhausted, but uh, yeah, okay, well. Uh, that's touched on a lot of stuff. Um, just to quickly go over the kind of podcast that we are, in case this is your first time, and just to brief everyone, uh, we don't really do just a generic sort of summary of the film or a breakdown of the plot, because that would get a bit boring, so we split it into sections like writing and plot, acting, directing, VFX, sound and music, and just generic other. Then we finish with our favourite character moment in line, we hear from the audience, and we give our conclusion on a score out of five stars. So, with that in mind... The first thing I wanted to look at, uh, just to mix things up a little bit, would be the writing and the overall plot of this movie. So, uh, with the exception of the stuff that TK just mentioned, Steve, have you got any uh, anything that you wanted to bring up on the writing and the plot before we, uh, we dive deeply into no, it? No, no, no. I'm not that critical of it at all, unfortunately. I watch it for the entertainment. That's fair enough. And what about you, DK? Anything you haven't already mentioned? <laughs> uh, not really. I mean, it's it's got a great pace to it it's uh, got some uh, as, as i mentioned it's got some dubious lines which no doubt you'll want to want to dive into as it were but uh, I, and i don't like the fact that there are some leaps of logic that one has to to take but other than that i think hmm. it's uh, i think it's a pretty decent script it's got some good well, ad-libbing in there as well i'm intrigued what you mean i'm not sure i necessarily picked up on any bad lines and when it comes to leaps of logic i probably just either didn't notice or hand waved a few of them away or oh, just so, you know just little things it's it, other than the uh, the sub it's it's mostly just little things other than the uh, the amy yeah. farrah fowler thing that uh, we'll know yeah. that 
Well, that's that was literally the first thing I was going to bring up because we may as well because you know we, we kind of have to. But yeah, this idea I think it was started by someone like Cracked.com or whatever, and then made popular in an episode of The Big Bang Theory, uh, as put forward by Mayim by Alex character that the film would be no different if Indiana Jones wasn't involved and he makes no impact or no real effect on it whatsoever. So where do we stand on that? Do we agree with that, or do we do we see the issues here, or, or the, the you know the point? <laughs> what do we think? Well, I mean, they would have found it anyway, so at least they got it out of enemy hands because they, I mean, you know, obviously they got it back to the states at some point. Yeah, but all that would have happened would be, you know, just to play devil's advocate for a second, the Nazis would open it and all die, which they did anyway. <laughs> so, arguably, the only role that Indy had was having, you know, being somebody that was there at the end to go, like, come and pick me up, US, and take this incredibly well, that's, dangerous. That's what I just said. I mean, but the, you know. Yeah. They, they could have, it could have been sat in a warehouse in Germany at some point. Yeah. That's, that's pretty much it as far as it goes. Yeah. I see. I, I, and just to, you know, to reverse my position of just then, I don't think it matters because it's not really, it's not about that, for example. And it's always, I'm always, you know, it's, it's the journey rather than the destination kind of thing. And the whole point is that Indy is the central character. So you can't really say he has no impact on, the movie because he has impact for himself and not on a personal level and for me it's it's that journey it's his you know re reconciling with marion uh, reigniting his love for archaeology and stuff it's us seeing his like you know what what he gets up to whether it be day-to-day -day, you know professoring or going out on digs and archaeological things and the love of that his you know his um relationship with Belloc, the kind of rivalry they have and how kind of entertaining and interesting that is. These are all things that, you know, matter without being a question of, well, if you take him out of the plot, it wouldn't matter because, yeah. Besides which, you, I mean, you even without him. You do that to a lot of classic movies. Yeah, of course. You're yeah, going to go down that rabbit hole. So I don't know why this gets the brunt of that kind of criticism. I think it's just because it was made popular in a, you know, very widely viewed sitcom. But um, I mean, yeah, and, and just to, you know, to, to bring it down to their level for a second, one has to assume the Nazis were aware of Abner Ravenwood and would have been headed to Marion's bar anyway. And if Indy wasn't there, God knows what happens in that scene. So, you know, even if it's just a question of saving the girl and not having her horribly branded and tortured, better than nothing, <laughs> shall we say. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Any thoughts on that from you, Steve? Any, any agreement or? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's very easy to sum up. Yeah, everyone would have been dead someone else probably still the, the germans would have found the ark again they may have tried again or took it back to germany the only real difference is the americans got it and put it in you know the warehouse be looked up looked after by top mind yeah as uh, as it turns out it was area 51 it was located as we would find out in a later movie which mm -hmm. unfortunately we can't pretend doesn't exist because it does but anyway <laughs> um so yeah the next thing i have to bring up it's gonna be a little uncomfortable but we have to because you know you know that's what we're here to do is this whole situation about marion's age that's been popping up lately more and more um it's not really necessarily in the movie in, in the text itself which is why it never really bothered me or i never really noticed it but it is uh it made very explicit in the novelization unfortunately and it has some pretty horrific comments from george lucas about it which I think uh, DK found, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, I I went into, I think it was about three or four days ago, this came up, and I just down, dumped this massive theory on Mike as to why this probably doesn't mean what, you know, everybody's saying it means, and Mike says, no, no, I'll try and find it. So I looked it up myself, 
and I came away with a really bad taste in my mouth. It, uh, yeah, yeah, that, that original script meeting transcription between George Lucas and Lawrence Kasdan is not great reading, to be honest. Yeah, uh, to give you the, in case you're not aware, to give you the sort of breakdown of the situation, although it's never really stated what age anybody is in the movie, supposedly. Um, Marion is meant to be 25 and Indy's meant to be around, you know, 28, 29 uh, and mentions that they haven't seen each other in 10 years so that they had a relationship 10 years ago. And you don't have to be Carol Vorderman to work out that 10 years off 25 would make Marion 15 when they had a relationship. Well, so I mean, it's, it's kind of even worse in the transcription. I know Lucas wanted him to be some kind of playboy and he kind yeah. of got his wish later on when it came to the young Indiana Jones. But in that original kind of script discussion, he thought it would be amusing if, if she was about 11 or 12. And I was, oh, God, good grief. No. Yeah. You can kind of see the genesis of uh, Padme and Anakin, as I mentioned to you there, the whole yeah. eight-year-old and 14-year-old falling in love situation. But, yeah, I mean, there is also, after, after that initial thing was quite rightly shot down in flames, there is also a conversation between Lucas and Spielberg where, Lucas kind of insists on the whole 15 as, you know, it's fine, different time, it's the 20s and whatever. And Spielberg was still just like, well, why we not just make a 16 then or 18? Or why not? It could have happened five years ago or two years ago. A lot can happen in two years, whatever. You know, but Lucas insisted that, no, no, it's she had to have been 15 years old for whatever reason. And, yeah. Just I in case any uh, anybody does jump into the comments. I will repeat what was heard on another podcast. So with respect to Mr. Sunday Movies, who said this, first of all, remember that you are defending fictional characters and a horrible thing before you jump into the comments defending this. So, you know, just keep some perspective. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm glad Spielberg got his way. I mean, yeah. for every good idea that George Lucas has had, he's had some pretty, some pretty <laughs> doozy bad ones. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. But um, as I say, the, the, the merciful part of it is that there's nothing necessarily within the film that would make you aware of this controversy, at least in the film itself. Like I said, the novelization is a different story, but as, as watching the film, it never occurred to me. I never noticed. And it's just the sort of thing that's for whatever reason popped up and become part of the zeitgeist over the last few years to the point that even uh, Karen Allen has had to comment on it in interviews and stuff. And, you know, if you look around, there are massive headlines of the interviews of like Karen Allen insists Indiana Jones is not a pedophile or whatever. Yeah, oh, I'm going to go with uh, with her explanation for it. Yeah, it, you know, nothing's definitely down unless you're reading the novelization. So, and you yeah. can't really always take those as, as no, bad. definitely not. No, and it doesn't bother me because I can just ignore that supposedly not needing to be the fact. Because as I said at the end of the day, Spielberg didn't include anything on screen to firmly state anybody's age, so it doesn't bother me only because I can ignore the fact that that's what Lucas wanted and that's what supposedly is the case. So, yeah. Were you even aware of any of this controversy, Steve, or is this news to you? No, no, absolutely not. I mean, yeah, it does put across in that she was young, but, yeah, mm. it doesn't quite go into that. Yeah, there are still some lines that are a bit dodgy that I kind of wish I didn't have, like the whole... Oh, you, you took advantage. I was a child. I could live without, to be honest with you. Um, although, you know, she could have been exaggerating. We can kind of hand wave that away in that way as well. But Yeah, well, like I said to you in that discussion, it, uh, you know, I could have, because of the times and age, I, I could see him referring to, you know, a 17-year-old, an 18-year-old as a yeah. child at that point. And that's how I, oh, yeah. that's my head canon. That's how I prefer well, to look at things. 
that's the thing. I mean, in America, you're not an adult till you're 21. So it gives you even more leeway to be like, she could have been 20 and still think I was just a child. So again, you can get away with a lot there. But uh, yeah, as I said, at the end of the day, very weird situation, but thankfully not anything that has to bog down the movie. And we can now move on from it, having dealt with it. So <laughs> with that unpleasant... That means they give guns to children. Oh, God. <laughs> and I think that's the least of their worries. Uh, I will yeah. uh, mention, since you brought it up, I will mention that there's one scene in which Indiana Jones looks at a gun before throwing a completely different gun in a suitcase. So, oops. And uh, he has a, a particular make of gun. I forget what. It's one of the Walther family of guns, which, although it was technically in use by the British Army, had only been introduced two months earlier, and he's not British. So technically, he shouldn't have that either. <laughs> But, you know, don't give them to kids. That's bad. <laughs> like I said, I'm here to be the annoying nitpicker on occasion. But I won't, uh, I won't do that anymore. I just wanted to bring that up. And, yeah, speaking of annoying nitpicking and uh, overly wokeness, which you've come to expect from us for now, how are, are we still comfortable watching this knowing that Indiana Jones is just basically robbing other cultures to put stuff in museums? It, it doesn't sound great when you kind of break it down, does it? It's, I, I guess, we're looking at it from today's lens, but it's, it's you know, it is what it is. It's an adventure serial. It's very much of its time. And I, I can kind of, you know, without trying to sound, you know, dismissive, it, I can kind of hand wave that away while I'm watching this. Yeah, I mean, it's a little culturally insensitive and it gets worse. Weirdly enough, it gets worse and better in, uh, I was going to say the sequel, but it's a prequel in um, Temple of Doom because you have some incredible cultural insensitivity, like really bad, there's blackface, there's horrible depictions of another culture, but then at the end you at least have Indiana Jones being like, hmm, maybe I shouldn't take this object from the starving village after all. So, yeah, it's a weird mixed bag of a situation there. But like I said, this that is churlish, that's more of a just me mentioning like, yeah, it's not great, but, you know, this, this is the times they were living in, and you've got to have adventures somehow. And... Uh, yeah, as I said, if, if we start looking into that too uh, too heavily, then as I mentioned to DK, you've got to ask yourself who it was that set all these traps, then managed to get out without tripping any of them. <laughs> yeah, you can you can get bogged down in, in this kind of thing. I mean, it's, there's 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 little things like where he where Belloc takes his gun, he goes yeah. to the next scene, and he's also got his whip, and I don't know. It, yeah, it, you don't need to spell out everything. Yeah, right now in this, why didn't I see this? Why didn't I see this? And yeah, I think it's just, yeah. I think it's one of those films, it's best, you just sit back and enjoy it. And if you do that, it's, yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, these things don't really affect anything in, in the larger sense. And uh, yeah, it certainly doesn't make anything come off wrong or bad or errors or whatever. But yeah, anyway. Um a lot of my notes, I think, were stuff you already mentioned. Obviously, you said it was set in 1936 because it's a kind of throwback to those old Republic serials and the Charlton Heston movie that they ripped off his Indy's entire look from. <laughs> I forget the name of it now. Sorry, <laughs> did yeah, you have it written down? Inches. That's the one. Yeah, yeah. So uh, very similar to that. But I will say I did notice, having heard just a few weeks ago that it was Spielberg's desire to direct a Bond movie, but, you know, you kind of had to be British until quite recently to do that. Um, there is a very James Bond-like structure to this that I kind of noticed with that in mind. Because when you think about it, the the temple idol scene is very much your, your pre-credits James yeah. Bond on an adventure movie. Then you have the kind of briefing with M, which is actually like the guys in the hall of the whatever college explaining the situation and what the 
the staff of Raw or whatever it is, <laughs> and everything, and then going off on the adventure and the various set pieces and globe trotting around the world. There's even a kind of a Bond girl, although I would, you know, that that's very reductive for the character of Marion in particular. But yeah, it's kind of weird that it, it still echoes that structure pretty pretty well. I would think. Um, do you guys think the same, or did you, is that just me <laughs> reading too much into it? I don't know. I, I think it, it's it's kind of dismissive of Karen Allen. I, yeah, I can see your point. It's dismissive of Karen Allen to regard her as a kind of a Bond girl figure. I think she's by far the best actress that we've had in the entire saga. And yes, I am including Kate Blanchett in that. Uh, I just I just think Marion as a character was was great. And no offense to Kate Capshaw, but it was such a downgrade when uh, when Willie was yeah. the second one. Well, again, to quote Family Guy, Lady Only Here because she humping director. So, <laughs> but yeah, I, mean, I, I would. <laughs> I will say that um, obviously Marion is the best of Indiana Jones's love interests. But after writing that down, I was like, yeah, but the, the competition is Willie the Screamer or a literal Nazi. So, <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. He- well, if you're going to count Young Energy Jones, he had his fair share. How this guy did not end up with syphilis before Raiders is beyond me. I know you've been watching Young Indiana Jones and enjoying it, DK, but I have to point out it's not canon. He has a daughter and not a son in that. No, no, no. no. The book ends up canon. The movies themselves are now canon. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. <laughs> How does that work? <laughs> yeah, well, when it, when, this, when it first was released, obviously each one had a bookend with George Hall, apart from Mystery of the Blues, which was bookended with a Harrison Ford adventure. Lucas decided, no, he doesn't want that. So after Last Crusade, he took all the movies, removed the bookends, apart from the Harrison Ford one. I don't know if he's got something against, you know, older actors, same as he did with Sebastian Shaw. But, uh, oh, yeah. yeah, he got rid of all those bookends, mm. kind of tied a couple of loose themed episodes together and put them in chronological order and the movies as they also filmed extra movies they are now considered canon but the bookends have now been apart from as i said the harrison ford one it's they've kind of all been thrown on the trash heap oh fair enough i can't say i'm particularly all that interested or have ever seen the young indie stuff i just know that it was something you've been diving deep into so i mean compared to the first trilogy they, they don't come close and some of them I mean, I like them now, but I cannot for the life of me think how do, what possessed them to think a kid growing up who brought up on Temple of Doom and Last Crusade would have sat there and enjoyed them because there's just nothing there for the most part. But uh, some of them are really good and the later ones, especially Sean Patrick Flannery, and I consider, obviously, they're better than Crystal Skull. (laughs) Uh, I yeah, I can't really judge having not seen them, but I think I as soon as I found out it was edutainment, I was like, no, stop trying to teach me things and disguising it. <laughs> yeah, Max, you, you just, just don't like learning shit, do you? Let's be fair. <laughs> I don't mind learning. I just I don't need to be lied to. <laughs> don't do it in what's perfectly good an adventure movie, you know. Anyway. <laughs> Uh, the next sort of point that I wanted to bring up, other than the fact that I have in my notes the hilarious sentence, oh, look, there's a snake on a plane. Ha, ha, ha. Oh, good. <laughs> mm. I had to drive that in somewhere. Uh, what do you guys think, this is a heck of a question, about the Christian iconography that's used in this movie? Uh, not necessarily just Christian. There's obviously the Jewish ritual and everything as well, but certainly this movie 
relies heavily on the the Old Testament usage of you know the actual ark and what it is and what it represents and even the you know the power the glory of God destroying these Nazis at the very end. So how do you feel about that? And do you think it works? Uh, Steve, let's come yes. to you first. <laughs> just, just yes, it's a movie. Just yes. It's the yeah. thing. Yes. Yeah. I didn't even think about it until you said it. Really? Because yeah. I would I, I would counter that in a bizarre situation, the worst Indiana Jones movies are the ones that don't use religious iconography. Yeah. Like Temple of Doom and Crystal Skull avoid it, and they're not as good, <laughs> weirdly. So in whole Kalimar things, probably some sort of pseudo-religious thing, but yeah. Well, I mean, is it? <laughs> but yeah. But no. um... <laughs> it certainly seems that way. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's just a mechanic to get you there and a yeah. reason for this to happen. They could have changed yeah. that with aliens, you know, like they did mm. the fourth one. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, does, it doesn't bother me, just to clarify, even as a person of faith, it, it doesn't bother me at all. If anything, I'm kind of glad that there's a level of representation that accepts that God exists and is fine with that concept, you know, and, uh, you know, destroys evil. So, yay. But <laughs> what about you, DK? Uh, I will posit that uh, the aliens and the Shankara stones, they're just as much kind of pulpy ideas as the religious. Oh, yeah. It's, it's what you do with the movie around it. And I think as far as MacGuffins go, they're really well done in the, the Indiana Jones, well, the the, tri the original trilogy at least, they, uh, they they're not just an object to be sought out. They do actually play into the narrative as it goes along. You know, obviously, as you as you mentioned, you've got Old Testament stuff here. You've got the the kind of New Testament in Last Crusade. I think when it came to Temple of Doom, they looked back at Raiders and thought, okay, where did we go wrong and what can we take from the first one? And I think that's why you've got a lot of the same kind of imagery in Last Crusade as you do in Raiders because they kind of struck gold in this. It's, yeah. it's, it's got a kind of, I mean, I, I, I'm not particularly religious myself, but, you know, having gone to school and stuff, I mean, I don't know if kids learn any kind of religion kind of thing or if it's, it's not allowed these days with, with, you know, the, uh, the multicultural diversity that we have in, in, uh, in the country these days. But, yeah, I knew about the Ark of the Covenant, but I mean, I we learned about it in school. But the only reason I actually knew about the Ark of the Covenant is because of Raiders of the Lost Ark, and mm. you know, it's there. It's it's to some people they're they're real items. To some people, they can be ascribed to myth or legend. Yeah. And I like that. There's no, they don't give a definitive answer. Well, it's really. kind of hard to explain the ending. If it's just a myth, though, that's the well, thing. No, no, because you know, there's not necessarily the commandments in there. You could, it could be anything. It, it's yeah, just, but what's the power that destroys them? It the could be anything. Day. It could be Captain Bob sat on a cloud somewhere, going, mm -hmm. "Yeah, I don't like these Nazis. They're a bunch of wankers." You, you can't, you know, you each again, as I've said with each film that we review. You each bring your own personal experiences to it. Now, some people could describe, as I say, you know, you, you have faith in this kind of thing, so you could attribute it to that. And yeah, I'm, I'm not particularly religious, but I can say, yeah, God. Some people may watch it and think, no, it's it's nothing to do with that. Yeah, I well, you could. I mean, yeah, you, you could just look at it as well. It, it, I don't have to ascribe 
God or any other meaning to it. It's just a supernatural force. Yeah. And that's yeah. as much as you need. And Or maybe you believe in some form of an afterlife, and that's why they kind of look like literally souls, because you came from the well of souls. You could just have it as this was somehow, you know, some ancient person, I guess, captured souls of people that were in torment or killed people and captured their souls, whatever. You, you can well, do that. Well, exactly. I'm not, I'm not, you know, as, 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 as great as Spielberg is, I, I wouldn't say Raiders is on the same level as Bergman's Seven Seals. So it's it's not there for you to read that much into it. I, personally, I would have thought. No, anyway. no, and I'm not saying that it is, but for me, it is just kind of. It, I don't know. Without wanting to sound overly, you know, annoying to everyone, it's kind of nice to have that kind of whether you believe it or whether you see it as a myth to have that kind of thing still existing because. A lot of my uh, education wasn't from school or Sunday school, as Indy says. It was from movies like the yeah. Nest and Ten Commandments or the old greatest story ever told in the Bible. And so my mom used to love all those. So we kind of partly because, you know, we were a Catholic family, but partly because you just like those movies. And kinda, I like that that survives in here and that they're not afraid to go to it. Whereas I think nowadays a lot of movies would just be too skittish to do it. Yeah. And it would be, I mean, well, yeah, it's kind of a shame. Well, when you look at things like, uh, his dark materials when they adapted that into golden compass and they gave themselves an impossible task, yeah. you know, because they were trying not to put any religious connotations to it. And <laughs> it's just impossible. But as you say, yeah. you know, you learn these things, not necessarily in school or if you don't have faith in a church kind of thing. I mean, we, we looked at Norse mythology at school and the only reason I knew Norse mythology was through my goddamn Thor comics. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Stanley did a lot of work to bring the, uh, Norse mythology into the modern mindset. Yeah. <laughs> I think yeah, and Greek actually, come to think of it. A lot of Greek stuff, I mean, on a similar level. Not that I'm saying it's the same thing as somebody who believes one thing over the other, but if you do believe it's all a myth, then even things like Jason and the Argonauts and or uh, Clash of the Titans, which these I mean the Indiana Jones films are not a million miles away from exactly. in terms of kind of adventure serials, you know. So, there, there was that kind of <sighs> There was already that kind of underlying prevalence in the movies at that time with the Harryhausen things, as you mentioned. Mm. And Raiders, I mean, for better or worse, it was one of those films that, you know, gave us a deluge of, you know, really bad knockoffs. I remember yeah. watching a, an Italian Italian one called Treasure of the Four Crowns. And yeah. it looked amazing on screen. But when you see bats being dangled by wires, you know, this is, this is a level <laughs> of book. And I think... Yeah. Just, just as an aside, as MacGuffins go, they work in these movies. A, a couple of weeks ago, I watched uh, what we were talking about earlier. I watched Mission Impossible 3. And in Mission Impossible 3, there's a MacGuffin in there. Unfortunately, the whole thing is a J.J. Abrams thing. So you never actually find out what <laughs> Oh, so it's is. a mystery box then. <laughs> it is. It's, it's basically A to B. Everybody's after this MacGuffin called the rabbit's foot. It has a biohazard stamp on the side. It's never explained what it is. It's never explained what it does. It's just used as a throwaway thing for people to chase after. And I think where the Indiana Jones movies gets it right is that they make these things essential and they make them interesting. No, no, no cinema audience is going to care one iota for something that they've got no interest in, don't know anything about. And it yeah. just kind of, it, it marks it out as just a really kind of flawed narrative. And I think where they place these MacGuffins in the other Jones films, it's intrinsically interesting to the narrative. They serve a purpose. And yeah, I think it works in these films. And as I say, this one on Last Crusade especially. 
I think as well it's kind of a masterstroke to have set them in the past because it avoids what became increasingly the case in any kind of action-adventure movie from the 80s onwards, which is the MacGuffin was always something to do with computers or something around the lines of like, oh, they've got this codex that they can plug it in and they'll wipe out all computers and the world will collapse. Yeah. And it's just kind of like, you yeah. can only see that so many times until you're like, oh, God, another one. Yeah. <laughs> Who keeps inventing these things that can collapse the entire internet or whatever, you know? Yeah. But, uh, yeah. But no, I like well, I like the was released a social media platform. <laughs> As it turns out, speaking of Nazis. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, that's cool. That's fair enough. Any any thoughts, Steve, before? Because I, I don't want to railroad you advocates where we didn't yeah, really come to you. Awesome, awesome. Um I will say just going back to the opening scene in the temple and the uh, the, the idol itself. I really love this is such an obvious thing to say, but I love the idea of swapping it out for something that weighs the same amount because that's the kind of really basic, obvious shit that just never occurs to me. Like I'd be a crap Indiana Jones because I I'd be sat there for like three days trying to work out how to get rid of this thing without triggering a trap. And I also like that it just doesn't even work. <laughs> yeah. Like of course it doesn't. You can't just immediately you know it's still been off the weight or whatever for even for a millisecond. Of course it doesn't bloody work. But yeah. I kind of love that. I love that thing. And uh, that whole scene is just iconic. I mean, isn't it? The, the traps and the boulder and yeah. the the betrayal thing, as I mentioned, it's just so good. As an opening to a film, it's it's how you grab your audience, isn't it, really? It's beautiful. It's, a, it's like a lesson in movie making. I think this is Spielberg. He's just he's in his best period. Yeah, well, I... I, I Personally, I lean more towards the 90s, but I see what you're saying. It's uh, Well, yeah. I know why, mate. I know why that is. <laughs> you don't well. even see his face. He's, he's just yeah. bigger of almost menace in a way because he's just he's going through doing all well. these things. People are handing him paper, and then you know he shoots the guy or the gun out. So he uses the whip to get the gun out just of the guy's hand. Him, and you're like, ooh, badass. No, that's that's one of my notes actually in the direction. So that's well noticed, Steve. I'd noticed the same thing. It's it's not so much a figure of menace as a figure of reverie. Like look, like you said, you, you're not looking directly at him. You see him from behind in the opening shot, even though he's framed front and center. Um, mm. You know, just despite the advice that John Ford apparently gave Spielberg about placing the camera places. Hey, hey, reference to anybody that saw the Fablemans there. Um, but yeah, so you see him from behind. You see him in the shadow and everything. And even after he's done that, saving his life, you know, whipping a gun out. He is revealed emerging from the shadows in that heroic way that's mm. been going ever since, I guess, Touch of Evil back in the 40s. So, yeah, he, he's given that significance and that prominence by Spielberg's direction, which, of course, he is. You know, he is the central figure, even though they forgot to put his name in the title of this one. So, yeah. Awesome. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I will say I, there's a few too many bizarre, you know, corpses on traps gore in that scene for me. It, it went a little bit... But then again, you look at it by comparison to the snake pit scene later on with the thousands of corpses that Marion walks through, and you're like, actually, that was quite conservative, sticking to about three. So never mind. No, no, you, I mean, you compare this to Temple of Doom, and it's like an episode of Place. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, which is weird, because Temple of Doom's the one that nobody really remembers the big, you know, <laughs> moment that sticks in your brain as a kid, because it was always the end of this and the end of Last Crusade. Those are the ones that you're like, <laughs> did it scar you? Did it intrigue you? But it definitely stuck in your memory of you know what was doing even though looking at them now the special effects are not great but they work you know so 
Yeah, whether it's melting faces or just aging to death. And I think that was another thing where they kind of misstepped with Crystal Skull is that they wanted to try and do something like that. And the terrible CGI Kate Blanchett's head exploding thing just doesn't work at all. I think the, <laughs> the overuse of CGI in Crystal Skull is what ruins it. I think yeah. the acting is good for the most part, although some characters are unnecessary. Mm. But, you know, back back during the original trilogy, it was mostly practical effects. And, yeah, yeah. The, the, the amount of CGI in Crystal Skull, it just kind of gave it this layer of insincerity. It's, yeah, and it's not that I've got anything against CGI. It's just that when it's not used well or it's overused, it's it's not good. It, it, like yeah. anything else, it can be used badly, and I think that was an example where it was. And as you're saying, even though we can say that some of the stuff in these earlier movies looks dated, it also kind of looks great because it's practical yeah. in, in a few of those cases, you know? And, uh, if you compare the, this, the, the truck scene, and they've all got one of these kind of set pieces in the Indiana Jones movies, you compare the truck scene, and you look at that, and it's just it's amazingly directed and holds your attention from beginning to end. When you have that in Crystal Skull, it then gets interrupted. Just as you're settling, settling into the groove of this adventure, you're constantly interrupted in that movie every so often by layers of CGI, and it just instantly takes you out of it. Even from, I mean, from literally the very first shot, though, because this movie opens, to, to Stephen's point, with such a gorgeous transition where the Paramount logo mountain transitions into the mountain that you're looking at, and then Indy steps into the frame. And then Crystal Skull has it transformed the Paramount logo into, like, a molehill, and then a terrible CGI gopher appear for yeah, no they, legitimate reason whatsoever. Yeah, the damn fairy dogs. <laughs> and then, you, as I say, you have, you've got that fantastic chase sequence in the jungle, and you're just getting into it. And then you've got that ludicrous monkey scene yeah Shia LaBeouf friend to the monkeys <laughs> it's awful speaking of which uh of Shia LaBeouf and monkeys I did note there's a point in uh, Raiders when Marion's kind of teasing Indy with the Nazi monkey and she's like oh this is our baby you don't think he's cute and I was like you know what he's a better child of yours than Shia LaBeouf so, <laughs> despite being a monkey and a Nazi I'd probably take him over Shia dear that, that was just a joke, everyone. <laughs> Calm down. <laughs> yes, Honey Boy was great. Calm down. <laughs> um, I did like as well. I only have a couple of notes on the plot because, as I say, I think I've put a lot of stuff under direction, which we'll get to. But uh, the only other thing I had uh, partly is that I love the idea of this. Um, this sorry, I forgive me. I don't know the character's name, but the kind of this, such a stereotypical Nazi that I just refer to him as that allo allo looking fuck. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> come on, he is. <laughs> you know the one with the hat and the glasses, you know. Oh. <laughs> I don't know what his name is. He looks like he should be threatening Gordon Kay. That's all I know. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, speaking of him, I although I don't love that he's such an obvious kind of stereotyped villain and like, oh yeah, this guy's gonna he's a bad and he's gonna come a cropper in the end. I kind of love the genius idea that he burns his hand on the medallion during that bar scene because mm. he was threatening to brand Marion, then got branded himself, which is the beautiful bit of poetic irony. And also it's kind of important to the plot that they know like that's what it looks like because it's burned into him. <laughs> you know? yeah. There's so. a bunch of little things throughout the movie which then have a payoff towards the end. It was very well done. Yeah, definitely. But it never feels like you're not watching it like, oh, that's going to become important later in a way yeah. that you do with some movies. Yeah. yeah. There's no obvious Chekhov's gun moment. It just it plays yeah. naturally. And as I say, I think this is why 
this era for me is Spielberg's best. Yeah, as I say, I think the closest it gets to that is that whenever you see that Nazi guy on screen, you're like, well, he's going to come to a horrible end because you're building it up that we have to have that satisfaction moment or that you know comeuppance moment. But other than that, nothing's predictable. I would say even in the movie. Um, so yeah, and yes, the, the next thing I have any notes on in the plot is just the the kind of. The really sweet scene in the cabin uh, with Indy and Marion with the whole, you know, it's not the years, it's the mileage that I alluded to earlier and them mm. having a real moment and then him just falling asleep. Because <laughs> it's like, that's that's a perfect, I think, summation of their screwball comedy uh, partnering in the movie because it, it never quite works out for them and yet there's clearly affection there and they're either bickering or like he leaves her kidnapped so he doesn't get followed and uh, it's, it's just, it, it's a perfect... For me, encapsulation of the, like I said, the likes of the uh, screwball comedies, the His Girl yeah. Fridays and stuff of back in the day, you know? I was just thinking about that. Really? Oh, okay. Yeah, I thought, yeah, it's like, uh, you know, His Girl Friday, Cary Grant kind of thing going on. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And uh, it captures it so well because obviously Harrison Ford and Karen Allen, just fantastic actors. Uh, anyway. So, yeah, speaking of which, I will move next on to the acting. But before I do that, do you guys have any other notes on writing or plot that I haven't touched on? No. Awesome. Uh, well, we'll move to the acting then. And the first person we have to talk about is Harrison Ford. So, again, Steve, I don't want to leave you not talking and us talking all the time. So thoughts on Harrison Ford in this movie. He's, he's pretty crappy. He's not a great actor, I think, is what you're going to say. Is that, is that his name? Oh, right. I, I thought <laughs> that was That's his name, isn't it? Yeah, he's not yeah, been in much. Uh, no, he's not <laughs> doing anything, really. He didn't go on trail from that. And yeah, must have replaced him in the second one. I can't remember. <laughs> Can you imagine? Uh, <laughs> God, uh, no, I mean, you know, it's one of his iconic roles, really. It's one that made him who he is today, in part. Yeah. Um, where do you stand on it in terms of Harrison Ford's roles? Because perhaps controversially, I think it's his best role. I'd put it over Deckard and Han Solo, personally. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't disagree. Star Wars, Star Wars is obviously part of that trio. And oh. in it's completely blank to what the one of the robots is. Where Blade Runner, I did mention that good, yeah. Where may I'm not be a, be a replicant, but yeah, obviously it's, it's that was an interesting one as well. That was very much story driven. Blade Runner over the character. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and I mean that... it's certainly a good role for him personally, and he yeah. did well. As you say, I think what hurts Deckard in Blade Runner for me is just the fact that we never know where we bloody stand with him because <laughs> they tried to deliberately, to, for whatever artsy reason, to make him vague. Like, is he even human or not? Oh, mm. it's like I can't be bothered with that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm with Harrison Ford on that. There was, yeah, that wasn't he. That didn't even come up until later with his bloody unicorn and his final cut. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but yeah, so DK, what about you? Sorry to, to put you on the spot, but what do you think of the, in terms of Ford's filmography, where does uh, Indiana Jones sit with you? Uh, Ford has done some really, really good movies. And, you know, sorry out there if you're ever listening, I doubt it, but sorry, Mr. Ford, but he's done some pants stuff. But oh, when I think he knows. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, but when it comes to uh, his most iconic roles, as much as I love him as Han Solo, I, it's Indiana Jones every time. To me, that is his standout role. Oh, and when it, I mean, when it comes to Deckard, 
he apparently got the job as Decker uh, pretty much through this. The uh, rather than I think the audition, they just sent several little clips from the rushes while they were filming this, and he got the job of Decker just based on that alone. Yeah, and I did. Um, you, you didn't mention it in the behind the scenes, but I did hear from a, a different couple of sources that they almost didn't cast Harrison Ford because George Lucas didn't want to make it look like he was one of his continuing stable or there was a bias there because obviously he'd already been in Star Wars at this point as Han Solo and before that he'd been in American Graffiti so it was apparently a real struggle for Spielberg to allow uh, him to be cast in the role and you can't really imagine it without without him now you know that's they're struggling to think of ways to carry it on and try to pass the torch because I don't know if it would necessarily work without him. I think it could. And your love of the young Indiana Jones, you know, shows that as a franchise, it's obviously strong enough to to manage. But yeah, it's going to be a heck of a, a challenge to replace him if and when they did want to oh, carry definitely. it on. I mean, he's down to the act. And as much as I love, you know, Tom Selleck and, you know, obviously hindsight's twenty twenty. But I, if it had been Tom Selleck, no offense to the guy. I think he's a great actor, but I do not think it would be we'd be talking about it all this time later. No, I think it would have just gone down with a lot of the knockoffs and stuff, which aren't hugely well regarded, as you said. So, you know, the, the romance and the stone jewel of the Nile type stuff that yeah. only very few of us have unfortunately sat through. Have you ever seen uh, High Road to China? I haven't. I haven't seen that one, no. That That is an adventure movie in this style, uh, in this era with Tom Selleck. And it's good. But the very fact that you've never seen it, the fact that a lot of people don't know what you're talking about, that yeah. says it all. That's, that's what I mean. I think there's so many that got lost in the cracks because a lot of people tried to make things like this between the, the three original trilogies and, and they weren't very good. Although not necessarily uh, the case that they're not good. It could just be that they weren't you know big budget or... Uh, popular enough because I will say that my favorite of the Indiana Jones knockoffs, and I know you'll appreciate this, DK, is uh, the Librarian trilogy. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. I love those movies. Yeah, those movies are, I mean, they're clearly TV movies. They don't have a budget, and, you know, Noah Wiley isn't Harrison Ford, but uh, they're pretty great little movies, I think. Yeah. I think so it comes down to, to uh, you know, obviously it's a personal thing with an actor, but let's be honest. As crotchety and old bastard as he is, he's infinitely charismatic in the roles that he plays. Yeah, but more so, I think that's why I, I favor Indiana Jones. I think he's more charismatic, more relatable, and more believable in this than he is in, in the other roles. And I know that there'll be a lot of people screaming at us that we none of us picked Han Solo, but to me, Han Solo's just a bit of a jerk. Like, he's not the kind of dude you'd want to be friends with because he just, he seems so pompous and up himself and. I know the whole ad-libbed, you know, I love you, I know thing and everything, but he just comes off as so arrogant that half of the time you're not sure whether you want to laugh with him or slap him. Oh, no, I love that. I love that. Oh, Maybe shit. I'm just going to think of jerks, but, yeah. <laughs> I, I love it. I, don't, I mean, as I say, don't get me wrong. If it wasn't for uh, Indiana Jones, Han Solo would be at the top of that list because he by far is my favourite character. When it comes to Star Wars, when you're a kid – you identify with Luke. When you're later on in life and you're a bit more cynical, it's Han every time. So I've always identified with Jabba myself, but I think that's just physical appearance more than anything. Well, per- personally, it's, to, to me, it's Lando because I'm one smooth bastard. But yeah. <laughs> oh, bless you. But-
but no, I mean, well, I, not that it's not. It's not that I hate the character. It's just that Indiana Jones to bring it back is more, like I said, relatable and more like there's something about the fact that he's he's kind of a prototype John McClane in a way. Like instead of all of these invincible action hero, you're never worried about them. They can do anything. You have that fantastic moment where he's like, I honestly don't know. I'm making it up as I go along, guys. You know, I'm just, yeah. I'm trying here. I think that's what stands out when, when it comes to action heroes. We, we went through this yeah. phase in the 80s where they were all invincible. But you, when you look at the most popular ones, as you said, Harrison Ford and, you know, Bruce Willis is John McClane and uh, Daniel Craig's stint as Bond, they're mm. all kind of flawed when they get hit you see that they get hit. They don't just, you know, take a punch and then just keep going without bruises or, you know, a busted lip. Yeah, exactly. Indy, Indy always looks like, you know, shit hurts. When he gets hit, it hurts. He's in pain, you know what I mean? Not even just in that scene where he's like, where doesn't it hurt? And he points to the elbow or something, which is pretty funny within itself. But, like, yeah. he, he looks like he's been through it. And even when he has to find a way out of stuff, it never feels like a deus ex machina or a cheat. So, like, even when you're like, how's he going to get out of this horrible snake pit they're trapped <laughs> Even when it is literally a deus ex machina. Yeah, which, I mean, it is in a lot of ways, yeah, but yet it's it's somehow you don't mind, it's believable, you're fine with it, because you're rooting for him, I guess, the whole way through? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure it would have worked had Lucas got his entire way and he'd been a bit more of a, you know, as the older folks say, a bounder. Well, he would have just turned him into Han Solo 2.0, by the sounds of it, because... Yeah, but without a paedophilia... Yeah. <laughs> exactly and we don't need that. <laughs> yeah but no i mean that, that there is a few things i want to shout out be before we move on from harrison ford though which is that like even subtle things which give this character again a bit more depth than the han solo of it for me which is like when he's inquiring if marion's gonna be there to to brody at the start or when he realizes marion's alive and he thought she wasn't and he there's a hint of vulnerability there that you know deckard and han solo just haven't got really um I, I like that he has almost a kind of skeptic to believer type journey because he starts the movie with, you know, I don't believe in magic and all that myth and stuff and ends it with, don't look, close your eyes because something's happening. So, yeah, yeah. I kind of like that there's a bit of an arc there. Um, yeah, I think they kind of undermine that a little with Temple of Doom. Well, that's a prequel, so. <laughs> well, I know, but, you know, the fact that they undermined it by already introducing him to... Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, 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 and, the magical and side of thing, and then they just completely went batshit crazy in Indiana Jones, and I didn't go up against Dracula. So, really? Oh, God. oh yeah. But when does that happen? Masks of Evil. It's it's. Oh, is it a young indie episode? It's a young indie. Yeah, he goes up against Vlad. <sighs> Good lord! As long as he's not played by Richard Roxburgh. Anyway. Oh God! <laughs> it's a call back to an off-air conversation. Sorry. Anyway, so uh, yeah, and I do like in terms of talking about you know he's not invincible and that's kind of relatable and it makes you root for him more. I like that they one of the iconic things that they give to the character is a fundamental fear of snakes. It's an actual flaw, and you're like, oh yeah, cool. Because how boring would it have been if it was like pit full of snakes? I'm not bothered by this. And instead, you're like, oh, shit. <laughs> oh, why'd it have to be snakes indeed? I don't know if that would have worked. I'm guessing snakes probably wouldn't sit there patiently while you tied them together. <laughs> I know it's going back to the writing, but we didn't really no, go So many good lines in this. Like, yeah. You know, with the snakes and John Reese, you know, delivery of, you know, asps, very dangerous. You go first. Yeah. 
John Reese davies has some great deliveries because, as I said earlier as well, the whole uh, completely shocking when he just grabs it from midair and just goes, bad dates, because yeah. the monkey's been killed. I was like, that's a great little line delivery. Two words, and that's all it takes. Or how, you know, he, he kind of sings cheerily when they're winning on a couple of occasions, or he's, yeah. you know, noticeably chuffed when Marion gives him the little congrats kiss at the end for everything. And it's like, oh, that salary is the kind of. Up the sea. <laughs> A British tar is a, yeah, it's, a sword, sword. it's even like in little character moments where he gets Bullock's name wrong and he goes, Oh, they call him Bolosh. And yeah, Harrison Bullock. starts laughing. I just, I, it's made up of these little moments that imbue it with a kind of realism. And I think yeah. that's what helps it work. Yeah, I was going to say that. It's one of the notes I've got later on, but it is, it's. Something about world building because it populates it with characters who are believable and not just like plot functions or stereotypes or whatever. They are somehow, even in the smallest of roles, they're fleshed out characters. Even Doc Ock at the start of the movie. Sorry, I forget the character's name. So <laughs> that character in the intro, he barely has a function in the movie. He's not there all that long. And yet you go through the motions with him. It's like, oh, he's a cool dude. He's a friend. He's telling you, you know, nobody's come out here alive and all about these superstitions and things. Then I was genuinely shocked when he betrayed him. Uh, adios, yes. senor, and all that. And then shocked again when he's just impaled on the way, even though that dummy, not, nothing like Alfred Molina, but still. <laughs> I, it, as you say, it's a masterclass in world building because in that few 10 minutes from, you know, from the very first mountain peak to when he's on that plane with Jock, you pretty much pick up every single characteristic that Indy has. There's no exposition needed. It's a classic yeah. example of show, don't tell. And I think exactly it just, here. It just makes it work. That's even when it drops in the whole he's afraid of snakes thing, which again, when you think about it, comes from nowhere. It has no point in being in that scene, but it nicely sets up for later when he's trapped in a pit full of the buggers. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm guessing you're aware, and no doubt the audience are aware. The guy that betrays him at the start, not Alfred Millini, the other guy. Mm -hmm. Same actor who plays the eye patch guy with the monkey later on. Really? I did not know that, actually. Yeah. Well, fair enough. Uh, yeah, that bloomin' monkey. The Nazi monkey. Anyway. <laughs> so do you guys have any other thoughts on Harrison Ford, or can we move on to the, the next uh, actor I want to talk about? I just think he's great. Awesome. Uh, right. So the next character, or the next actor, I should say, would be Karen Allen, obviously, because for me, as I, I say, she's she's kind of as important in the plot as Indiana Jones to me, certainly more so than any of the other love interests until her again in Crystal Skull, which I think is the one thing that movie gets right, uh, remembering her kind of agency and the importance of her character. And I'm kind of not loving the fact that they haven't got her in the new one, and it looks like they've gone, they might have gone down the route of yeah, they were married, but they got divorced or whatever because we don't want to deal with all of that. Yeah, but I have heard that's, that you know she's not really part of the plot because they're doing the whole he's divorced from her thing, and I could live without that because I kind of do want to believe in them as a couple, I guess. I don't know. I mean, I'm yeah. not worried about the absence of Shia LaBeouf. Get rid of that guy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this podcast just turning into me hating on LaBeouf. I'm sorry. But at the end of the day, he made three awful Transformers movies. He, he, he... You've still not forgiven him for that, have you? <laughs> Mainly the second one, if I'm honest. But yeah, <laughs> I want to hold him responsible for that. It's more of a Bay problem. There's some pretty dodgy acting. Anyway, I'll not get bogged down in that because we're talking good actors. So Karen Allen, as I said, not an actress who has worked nearly enough, in my opinion, but great in this, 
in the other indie movie, Crystal Skull, and Great and Scrooged, which we might talk about one one day. Um, but yeah, I just I think she's so good in this yeah. movie because for 1981, she is quite a strongly feminist kind of character in a lot of ways and has her own agency, like I said, sticks up for herself. She has She's able to drink anybody under the table. She brawls. She punches Indy when she first kind of re-encounters him and... Yeah, it's just this, or even funny moments like she has such perfect comedy timing. Like in the middle of the bar brawl, she stops to get a drink out of the leaking barrel that's being shot. That's such a small thing and so genius at the same time, you know. And the scene, uh, Paul Freeman in the tent, she's amazing in that. Oh yeah, absolutely yeah. That that scene is great because it it plays with all of your expectations because you're thinking. Okay, she's playing him. No, is she really drunk? Ah, oh, okay, cool. She's getting out of there. Ah, oh, no, wait. She's actually not getting anywhere. <laughs> so, brilliant scene all around, but so well acted by everyone. And yeah, her in particular, because you never, she's never telegraphing it. And I will say this I don't know if I've mentioned it before because I'm not sure if it's came up on any of the movies we've reviewed, but one of the hardest things to do is to act drunk and make it realistic and not over the top. And yet, yeah, she, she manages it <laughs> straight from the off. Uh, yeah. Um, but even little things like the way she's kind of uncomfortable with the monkey at first or, yeah, uh, the callback, like I said, to the, the drinking contest, the way that she's she's trying to best Belloc in that. And the only complaint that I have is I, I was a bit uncomfortable with how much she just turns into damsel in distress during the market scenes, the market fight, because it seems like there's a solid 10 minutes of just indie help. Ah, oh, no. And I'm like, oh, this is she's regressed for this one sort of scene. And uh, yeah. That's that's without mentioning the scene that I showed to you, DK, which I may have to see if I can upload as part of this, but the scene when Spielberg really should have had a retake because clearly he's told Ford and the stuntmen to be all doing all this and then just went, Karen, just, I don't know, hit them in the background with something lightly or whatever, and it looks so ridiculous. She's just lightly tapping these extras with a box for like a solid minute while Indiana Jones is having a fight in the foreground and it's so distracting and so weird. Um, so yeah. Anyway, enough about uh, about Karen Allen from me. What about you, Steve? What do you think of uh, Marion? Other than obviously, presumably you're a fan of the. Uh, you mentioned the the seduction scene with the silk dress that she gets from Bella. I mean, she looks good in that. Yeah, definitely. But no, I think you've already hit on a big part of it. Really, it's for a female lead. She does do it very well. She is, as you said, the damsel in distress. And certainly at that time when they were making movies, that was what the female lead was really there for. But at other times, you know, she's fighting, she's drinking, she's firing machine guns, all mm. that stuff that is so hard for them to do properly today without yeah. making them a bloke. Yeah. yeah. But it's actually a woman. And it's like, no, she's still a woman, but she's still capable of doing all of that. And it would be nice to see that a lot more. And it's certainly yeah. something I'm hoping they don't cock up massively in the next movie. Yeah, well, Phoebe Waller-Bridge is a good choice, I think, of somebody to try and step into that role as, as being, as you said, very feminine, but also kick-ass. <laughs> so hopefully uh, that might work. Yeah, yeah, I've yeah. heard a few people talking about possibilities. And I'm like, yeah, maybe. I've not seen her other work, so I can't really say what she's like. Oh, I would. Well, you, you definitely have seen at least one movie. If you've seen Solo, she was kind of in that so <laughs> not in a massive way for me to remember this. well she was a voice she was the voice of the droid so you wouldn't have seen her um, yeah <laughs> yeah okay i get that so that was a bit mm, yeah. i'll hold the judgments 
but no, Fleabag is fantastic. Her comedy series that she writes and directs and stars in. So you should check that out if you get a chance. But anyway, but no, I mean Karen Allen. Going back to that, like I said, that's that's all of my notes. Just that she's really, really good in this and everything I've seen her in. Uh, and as you said, Steve, you've already mentioned, like you said, being able to hold on to being feminine and being a love interest whilst also being as kick-ass as the guy, if not more so in a lot of ways, pretty awesome. Yeah. DK, similar thoughts? Or? Uh, yeah, uh, it's interesting that you brought Phoebe Waller-Bridge up because I think if Raiders were released today, it, there'd be just internet cries of wokeness because Karen Allen yeah. is such a strong character. Yeah, she does, as Steve says, she's got that feminine side and I think you kind of need that in a, uh, a leading lady, but she equally is kick-ass in this. I love it. I think she's, it's a great role for her. I think Karen Allen is a severely underrated actor. I mean, she's in two of my yeah. favourite all-time movies, this and Starman. I'm not sure if you've seen that. I and, haven't, uh, but you, oh, you man, should have. You, you, a favor. you should have mentioned Scrooged. So. <laughs> well, you already mentioned it, and I know where that's going, so I'm not going to say anything more. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it, she's, she's, and I think, I don't know. I don't think she ever got the due that she deserves. No. I think she's absolutely fantastic in this. She can easily hold her own with anyone else on screen at any given moment. And uh, I think she was kind of the archetype for uh, my choice in, in women growing up. Thanks for this. <laughs> That's a pretty strong uh, claim to make. Yeah. I see what you're saying, though. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, she, she's, she's quite aspirational because you don't want to... You know, as much as some people think that you don't necessarily want just a bimbo, uh, and she can she can hold her own. So, yeah, well, she, can not only can she hold her own physically, she's, you know, I mean, yes, he's a professor, she isn't, but obviously she's picked up a great deal from Abner, her father. So to, mm. in my mind, she's, you know, as intellectually on Indiana's level as she is physically. And I think it's a really good partnership. And, and you know, she even says it until until that. I'll tell, you know, I'll tell you something else. I'm your goddamn partner. She's calling the shots <laughs> a lot of the time. I do like that about yeah. her. I think she's just a great yeah. character. And it does, to your point, it does make you wonder, would there be complaints if this movie was released today from the usual crowd of like, oh, yeah, she's taking the lead. Or it's all woke. The woman's having to, you know, stand I honestly think that would. I honestly yeah. think that would. I think so as well. But it's just funny how these things kind of happen in... in the, the culture, as it were, that people don't, you know, a lot of people that probably love this film would never notice that or wouldn't realise, you know, but anyway, uh, enough about that, because the final thing I will say about, uh, you know, what would make her the ideal, uh, you know, partner, if, if you were, if she existed in real life, she owns a bar, so, you know, <laughs> that's exactly. all you need to know. <laughs> exactly. Awesome, that's great. So, uh, yeah, any other thoughts on Karen Allen, or can we move to, uh, to Ivan, who's next? <laughs> Go on. <laughs> yeah, I, I just I find that baffling because as the biggest, as you know, Power Rangers fan who's watched that movie a thousand times, I only found out like a few weeks ago that Paul Freeman is the same guy that played Belloc in Raiders, which I've also seen yeah. a good few times. I and have to tell now... the listeners that I got a message from Mike on Messenger like a few weeks ago saying he's Ivan Ooze. Absolutely, yeah. And so now, watching it this time with that in mind, I was like, it's funny because the character of Belloc, I would say, is kind of pretty arch and even has the whole we're not so different shtick and would come across as over the top. Except I've seen, obviously, how over the top Paul Freeman can go. And to quote my own notes here, 
He never goes full ooze in this movie, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> so in actual fact, despite seeming like a bit kind of cliche and uh, over the top at times, it's surprisingly restrained from what I know he's capable of doing. Yeah. Um, yeah. He's, so, he's very understated for the material that he has, and I think he sells it because of yeah. that. Yeah, I do think he's still a little bit inconsistent, like I said, because you have, even within the same scene, the great moment of comparing how much he enjoys the rivalry between him and Indy. And then just, like I said, launching into that horrible stereotypical, oh, if you were nudged a little differently, you and I are not so different. You'd be just like me. I was like, oh. That's probably yeah, more yeah. the dialogue than him. But it's like, oh. You're kind of looking back on it now. I mean, this is 1981, and we've had 40 years of that kind of shtick from, from yeah, true. all corners. Um, I, I, I don't, I see him less as a nemesis than a, a frenemy, as it were, a rival. Mm. You know, and uh, well, I think it works in the context of this. I think with, in a lesser actor, and again, like Karen Allen, I don't think Paul Freeman gets half as much credit as he deserves. No, um, I mean... And it's only he through, through people that have kind of followed his career, like Peg, and, you know, putting him in... Uh, mm, fuzz and stuff like that. Yeah, I, th I think he's a, he's a really good character actor. And again, I'm sorry to be the cheerleader for the series, but he does turn up in another, another role in Young Indy. Oh, awesome. And then he starred in the greatest movie ever made in 1995. So, you know, kudos to him. <laughs> yeah, I'm not even going to pretend that's the case. No, I don't. <laughs> uh, see, that's what he should have done. Indiana Jones should have just got a giant robot to knee him in the balls. That's as simple as that. <laughs> I'm going to let that one sit for a while. Uh, yeah, but so Paul Freeman as Belloc. What about you, Steve? Any thoughts on how uh, how he's portrayed? I'm fine. Well, that's a, you've sort of covered a lot of it there, really. It was a good counterpoint to Indy in a way, really. Indy's obviously doing it for the prestige and always for the the university. That was always his thing. You know, fair enough, he gets paid for it, but he gets the adventure of getting it and gets to give it the university for all that prestige and for them. Whereas, obviously, he's more. He's out for himself and willing to use any resource possible to gain that prestige for himself, whether that's exploiting the natives or working with the Nazis and the rest of it. Yeah, he'll do what it takes yeah. to get the prize. Yeah, because to, to your point there, it is interesting that he's not actually like he doesn't clearly believe in the Nazi ideology. Like he's yeah. the one that puts, you know, he, he kind of smacks back when the guy complains about oh i'm not comfortable with this jewish ritual and he's just like well it's got to be done so get on with it you know yeah, and uh, you know it's it's not that he has a loyalty to their particular brand or anything you just get the sense that like you said he's a mercenary he'll go wherever the money is and yeah, yeah and do that absolutely there's something fascinating about that type of character where you've got no morals one way or the other but you're out for yourself and that's fascinating to me um yeah could have done with a bit more maybe of it but Fair enough. Mm -hmm. Any last thoughts uh, from any of uh, from you guys? Sorry, on any of the actors at all? No, that's uh, that's pretty much it, really. Yeah, that, I, that I've got. Yeah, we've talked already about Molina and um, John Reese Davies and how good they are. Denham Elliott as Marcus Brody, I think, is generic, but he's you know he's fine. He's good. Better in Last Crusade, I would say. But I'm, I'm going to dispute that. Really? I'm going to dispute that. I love Denham Elliott. I think he brings a an extreme touch of class to pretty much any role that he was in. He was one of the best things about trading places. I love Marcus in this. 
I love Marcus in Last Crusade until a point, ah. and then they just turned him into a complete raving loon. I mm. love, I love the serious Marcus, the Marcus that knows what he's doing. I appreciate the the you know the comedy elements from Last Crusade more, but I I think they did the character a disservice by making him just a complete Fruit Loop, in you know right. a complete inept. I think uh, I loved a little exchange between him and indiana in this and i like mark as a character i i just think they they didn't do the character uh, a good service in the end by making yeah a bit of an idiot well, he's, not, he's not got a lot to do in this movie even even with the scenes that you like though i mean you would admit he's probably underused if nothing else oh, but... definitely but you do take him seriously as a character and when he says you know if i'd have been a little younger i would have gone after it myself mm. and that line's always played in my imagination I because I, I do think it would have been nice to see that. And the very fact that he said that obviously led me to believe that he was this type of character that, while not as physical as Indy, he would have been out in the field a lot more if able. So when it comes to the later movie, and they thought, well, as soon as you drop him outside his, well, I mean, he even gets lost in his own library. As soon as you drop him outside his comfort zone, he's just a complete fool. Yeah, I see what you're saying. That's that's um, understandable, definitely. Mm. Um, but yeah, in terms of other characters, I only have a couple of things I want to mention. First of all, I always seem to forget the character of Katanga, and yet he's kind of fascinating because I love that he basically bluffs that he's a jerk and does so to kind of save, to try to save Marion and to basically save Indy by just saying, oh, I killed him. Don't worry about it. So he's kind of, even when you think he's not staying loyal, he is. And there's something kind of wonderful about that as a character, especially when you've seen the importance of keeping them safe that was imparted on him by Gimli. Um, I mean, Salah. So, <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. I have to, have to shout out, as I think one of our um, audience has in the interaction section, stuntman Pat Roach, who plays the bare knuckle boxer looking guy that Indy fights that eventually, you know, comes face to face with a propeller. Really yeah. good, fantastic bit of stunt work. And he's, he's been good in so many things. Um, I don't. I don't love that he blacked up to do uh, Temple of Doom, but you know you could see why they wanted to reuse him. Uh, he's a really good stunt man with uh, you know a lot of skills and sells that scene for you. You always feel like Indy's about to get his ass kicked, really. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, that's it from from me for the acting. But do you guys have anything at all about anybody else in the film? I was going to mention uh, Wolf Carla, who plays you know who's made an entire career playing Nazis. Uh, is that the guy that looks like Hair Flick? He, 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 no, that's Ron Lacey, who oh. I'm going to bring up because he was also the president in Adventures of Bakuru Banzai. Uh, <laughs> but, Good Lord. Yes, Wolf Carla. I mean, you know, he was in from, from Eagles Dare, where, sorry, where Eagles Dare and Force 10 from Navarone. He was the go-to choice in casting roles for the Nazis. Uh, he yeah. is what he is. He's, yes, he's typecast, but I think he's always good. Uh Ronald Lacey, I think, is fantastic as Tote. And uh, George Harris, who you mentioned as, uh, as Katanga, and who yeah. you, you, Mike, will no doubt know from another movie that we'll be discussing quite soon. Uh, yeah, I can't uh, I can't fault any of this cast. I think they all play their roles brilliantly. I don't think there's a single actor in this that lets the side down. Yeah, I can't think of one either. How about you, Steve? Would you agree? Yeah, I'm happy with that as a statement. 
Yeah, that's true. That's fair enough. So, as I said, the next thing that I want to talk about is the direction, anything we haven't kind of touched on already for that. And uh, again, Steve, we'll come to you. Anything that you've kind of noticed? Anything you want to call out specifically? You did kind of mention the opening stuff already, just to, you know. Yeah, I mean, that, that entire scene at the start is, is so iconic, really. Yeah. It's been used in various guises and in a lot of different ways. And obviously the introduction of the character and things as well uh, is really good. Um, the your dramatic mu- your music when the Nazis enter and, and things like mm. that. Yeah, yeah, cool. That's fair enough. And uh, what about you, DK? Any thoughts on the direction that we haven't already touched on? Uh, again, like as as I mentioned earlier, I think this is Spielberg at its best. As as Steve said about the 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 opening, the truck sequence is fantastic. The map mm. room. I still say he's one of the most atmospheric scenes ever mm. shot. Yeah. And even down to, to little things like the uh, the indie on the ridge with the silhouette, like in my avatar when they start digging. I just, yes. I just yeah. it's a beautiful, beautiful movie from beginning to end. I, mm. I don't necessarily agree with maybe one or two of the, the things that he cut, such as the, the sub thing, but it's small mm. potatoes in the grand scheme of things. I just think it's a beautiful, beautiful movie, even after all these years and you know how most of it's done and you know all the behind the scenes stuff you can still sit there and just get wrapped up in it and forget that it's a movie in, in my yeah. opinion anyway you just get carried along with it and i think that's the sign of a great director to counter that i would say that i kind of look on it as a movie and and i'm in awe of it in on that level on a director level because i'm a huge fan of spielberg and because i notice things like the way he stages things or the way that he gives things close-ups of focus the use of zooms, the way things are centered in the frame, you know, little moments. And to your point, there are scenes that have become so iconic that um, listeners, I sent uh, DK off air a video of like all the Indiana Jones references in Family Guy. And it shows how iconic those scenes are that they just copied them exactly. And there is a joke version of the propeller fight and the kind of guy falling over with our arrows in his back at the start or the, the map room, as you mentioned, all of these things. And yet they don't, they, they're so ingrained that Seth MacFarlane and whoever's animating them has copied exactly because they're so perfectly staged that there's nothing you would change. And they, they you know, they became iconic. I think, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a sign of real skill there. Uh, as I mentioned, I don't necessarily agree with some of the more gory aspects, including as much as it was fascinating as a child, the whole melting, exploding faces thing, because it kind of comes from nowhere in terms of what the movie is up till that point, you know? But... Yeah, I, I've learned to accept it over the years. It is, it is like the opening salvo in the in the term, fuck around and find out kind of thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah pretty much. Uh, I just swing a lot from a lot of, like, very serious stuff, violent, and then all of a sudden it's sort of just comical, you know, yeah. which is getting you know, taken off in a basket and all that sort of stuff. It, yeah. It, but I think that, that sort of keeps it as more of a light-hearted movie, really, and, and you know, Especially was being a PG, I think. And yeah. Especially yeah. with all the melty stuff, it might be in a higher grade than that. I oh think. yeah, I mean you can you can right. see how if very small cuts and a change of like framing and music would quite easily turn this into a virtual horror movie <laughs> if you wanted it to be, you know. Um, even as you said, the things like the snake pit, which should be and, and kind of are, you know, horrifying. And you're like, how are you going to get out of this? You also have the played for humor moments of them 
coming face to face with it and just like the the oh shit look on their faces it's kind of amusing as well as uh, terrifying you know so yeah i, I like it's, it a lot to me it says a lot that the fact that spielberg looked at this as a b movie and it still is so well done yeah definitely. And no offense to spielberg i um, think in one or two of his later films you don't get that and i don't think he <laughs> I love Spielberg, don't get me wrong, but I think there's a level of care in this that isn't necessarily in every film he's done. So for him to label this as a B-movie, to me, shows just how amazing a director he is. Yeah, I can I can get on board with that for sure. And I think I wanted to mention quickly, this is probably... I'm not as awfully as I sometimes seem with cinema history, but I think it's such a genius idea to have overlaid like a map of where they're going on the journey with the plane, like flying to it. And I'm sure this probably isn't the first film that ever did it, but oh, it no, seems, no, you know, yeah, but it seems like such an obvious thing that you wonder how many filmmakers just wouldn't do it and would, you know, it makes such a difference to the feel of the thing that it doesn't just cut to the next scene and then go like a subtitle that says 15 hours later or, yeah. That, you, you that actually feel like you're going on this journey with him. It, it, exactly. It, yeah. You know. You, it, yeah. I think technically, I think it's uh, it's it's just really well done. Yeah, I would I would completely agree with you. And I think there are times when it gets a bit slapstick, notably during the the market fight, as I mentioned. But it's it's not that jarring. It's just it's kind of it's it's annoying when a film is this close to you know, absolute excellence, and then you just get one or two slight missteps. But again, it would be churlish of me to go too far into that because it doesn't ruin anything. It's just a little a little thing that, that balks on me slightly. And that's about all I could say. But yeah, choreography, the fights and everything, just gorgeous. Um, yeah, so that's, that's the directing in terms of my thoughts. And I'm guessing you guys uh, probably don't have much else either. That's, yeah, I'm pretty much on the same page as you. We've probably talked for long enough, but yeah, just uh, just quickly then to, to break it down, uh, things we haven't touched on the VFX, I will say there's, in terms of visual effects, there's not much, but I kind of do still like, even though it doesn't look great, the melting faces effect. Like it's it's obviously Evil Dead plasticine type stuff, but it works really well in tone, I guess, with, the, with everything. I think the sets and the props are gorgeous. They all look so well designed, but there is still some ropey compositing on the scenes with like, lightning in the background and it, it looks a bit yeah very 1981 in a couple of those scenes um and in terms of i love it i love it it's just it, it, the <laughs> film's a mood to me and i just oh, think you take one of these things i mean the melting faces the the clouds with the lightning behind them you know the water tank i just love it i can't disagree with you on that case then so yeah fair enough and uh, yeah just to, to bring it back to something else the music Kind of Steve already touched on it, but yeah, um, it, it, it switches nicely and sometimes jarringly between like slapstick fun and the adventurous romp motifs that they do. Uh, most notably, the, the one that comes back at the very end during the top men moment, uh, which I noticed is kind of played throughout. But come on, how iconic is that John Williams Indiana Jones theme? It's just so good. Not just I'm that. Saying, I mean, I remember I, I wrote. I think it was only a couple of weeks ago when I when I watched it as part of the, uh, my my marathon. The the Matt Room Dawn track to me is is one of the best mm. pieces of music ever written. I just I think it's so atmospheric even now. Beautiful. Yeah, yeah. And it wasn't something that occurred to me as I was doing notes and watching, but as soon as you mentioned it back, it does live in the brain because it's jogged the memory straight there. And I'm like, yes, he's he's right, absolutely. 
and even though I didn't consciously register it, yeah, you're right, that is atmospheric and it's it's fantastic. It's such a cool scene. Um, the way it's staged, but also the music and stuff. But that's John Williams. But no, I've said it before and I'll say it probably many other times, but come on, man. The the sheer amount of iconic, brilliant music that John Williams has made. And yet, for me, apologies if you're a fan of anything else. There's probably, you know, dozens, if not hundreds. But for me, I cannot separate in my mind quite often the Jurassic Park theme, the Superman theme, and the Indiana Jones theme. They are all so good. And yet, uh, yeah, to, to imagine having one of those on your resume, yet let alone all three. I would also, <laughs> I would also add, uh, you know, obviously... You're not like you're not a big fan of the movies, but it also had had the uh, the Harry Potter theme, Star Wars. Just yeah, the Harry Potter one's iconic Jaws. as a theme in itself. Yeah, I mean, Jaws, I it, of course. Yeah, and Star I mean, Wars. Yeah, I mean, I know it was a flop, but he did the score for 1941, and that is always stuck in my mind. Huh. That's I've never seen it actually, but I probably should, being a Spielberg fan. Yeah, well, I might, I might, I might do that one for a cult one because holy shit, if there's an audience for that, it's definitely a cult one. Yeah, all right. That's uh, that's a, good, a definite possibility then for sure. So yeah, that's that's literally all of my notes. I think until we get to the favorite character moment in line. So is there anything that we haven't touched on that you guys want to mention at all about the movie or any last kind of thoughts before the the breakdowns? The plane at the start. What about it? It's a two seater plane. And <laughs> there's at least four of them. Oh yeah. Well, I think they, they've kind of established Indiana Jones was the only one leaving there. So they all kind of lived there or they were just going to, you know, they either lived there or they were just going to hang out and wait for another plane, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> it, see, that's the kind of thing that would bother me in a lesser movie, but I just don't really mind in this. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, I guess I guess you're kind of right, but it doesn't When you see it, you go, uh, but that's a, yeah, it's a two-seater plane. And one of this is taken up by a giant snake anyway. Um, <laughs> yeah, which just happens to be the guy's pet. <laughs> and then the, you know, the natives who have the accuracy of stormtroopers. <laughs> I don't know. know they killed that one guy with about seventy arrows in his back. You know, and that's it. So blatantly, the way in, you know, he obviously can speak their language and had arranged something beforehand because some of them are firing off into the trees. You know, they, they could take unless they were aiming for like a frog for lunch later on. I don't know because you know I'm sure we, they're really good with those bullets. We've done it. We're, we've we've myth busted it. It was all a con. Indiana Jones was never planning on anybody but him getting back. He had the natives kill everyone else, and he was always going to betray Doc Ock. <laughs> so, yeah. 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 People are going to be so annoyed that I don't know that character's name. <laughs> I just can't remember. A depot. Anyway. Yeah. A depot is it? Oh, a depot. Uh, yeah. Well. Otto Octavius is easier to, to say. <laughs> so, yeah, we'll come to the uh, the favourite character moment in line. Why not? We're, we're kind of uh, winding down. So uh, we always go to our guest first. So, Steve, who was your favourite character in the movie? Um, I was telling with the monkey, actually. <laughs> the monkey's a Nazi. He's the only Nazi Indiana Jones is kind to. So He's we... a mercenary. He gives That's a it. Nazi salute. <laughs> Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. And actually, the, the Nazi actually responds back to it as well. Exactly. Me as well. Um, Character-wise, apart from obviously going Pat Rook as well as the guard randomly. Mm. Um, you just want to be obtuse, don't you? <laughs> yeah. Mm. Uh, I'll go with Salah. The snake. <laughs> yes, the cobra in the pit. 
Indeed. <laughs> nah. But no, I heard you say Salah, so we're sticking yeah. with that one, yeah? That's it. He pops up a few more times and stuff like that. Yeah, it was yeah. nice to see his face in the trailer for Dial of Destiny. I kind of hope he has mm. a, a better role than that implies, or a, a longer one at least. But yeah, John Rhys-Davis yeah. is a great actor, man. How many people can say they've been in Lord of the Rings, Star Trek, Indiana Jones, you know, Sliders, <laughs> a thousand other things. Wow, yeah. Yeah, yeah. awesome. Uh, what about you, DK? Who was your favourite character in the movie? Uh, well, I mean, it's got to be Indy. Uh, I mean, characters now so iconic that it's four decades later and we're still discussing his first appearance. Uh, obviously, I prefer Spielberg's iteration of the premise as opposed to Lucas. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, he stood the test of time. It's 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 going to be indie, definitely. That's, yeah, that makes sense. I personally can't really separate indie and Marion because I think the best moments are when they're a duo in this movie, yet they are both separately great as well. Um because you went with Indy, I guess if I have to, going to my head, I'll pick Marion just to vary it a little bit and to give her that's a juice. Because... Partner, man. <laughs> okay, okay. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, no, I, I will. I'll see Indy and Marion together. But if you if you insist on me separating them, I'll, I'll slightly pick Marion just to give her the credit that she's deserved and put her on the board alongside Salah and and Indy. So yeah. Uh, so what was your favorite moment in the movie, Steve? <laughs> Ooh, single moment. I mean, can I just count the entire opening start? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of, yeah, the, the temple yeah. scene or whatever that, at the start, absolutely. That entire thing, because, you know, as we've already said, it's been used elsewhere so much and very similar things. It's, it's such a great scene. Oh, yeah. The amount of times we've seen since then boulders chasing people and people reaching under closing doors for hats and whips and whatever else. And uh, yeah. what about you, DK? I was initially going to go with the truck chase, but while we've been speaking on reflection, I think I'm going to have to go with the map room. Uh, right, okay. direction, soundtrack. I mean, they come together and they on perfect moments, hard to beat. And for me personally, in a movie filled with action set pieces, it takes something special to make a simple act of searching and discovering a location stand out. And so, I mean, it's it's basically the scene that uh, led me to study archaeology myself. So, yeah, I'm going to have to go with that. Yeah. And, I mean, for a scene which is basically just a dude illuminating a model village, not bad. Yeah. <laughs> if you can make that look good, you're a good director. <laughs> yeah, this is where I kind of – I know there are so many great and, like I said, rightfully famous moments, and I love them all. I don't want to downplay them. But I laughed out loud once – during this movie, even watching it now. I don't know why it never really stuck in my memory, but, and I'm sorry to all the other scenes, I have to go with the coat hanger gag, because I, I did, I laughed mm. audibly. It's just so freaking funny, the way it's played and everything. It was so, yeah. And I love the cheeky sense of humour that the film has at various points, and I think never more so than, than during that moment. It works really well for me. So that's what I'm going with. And, uh, yeah, we've uh, given you time to think about it, Steve. So what's your favourite line in the movie? Um, I'm going with the arrogance of Marion. You can't do this to me. I'm an American. <laughs> oh, there's something very, uh, yeah, familiar about hearing those words, perhaps. Yeah. yeah. That's so a heck of a choice. <laughs> and, uh, DK, what's your favourite line? It's a bit of a Again, cheap a one. Yeah. But... 
I'm going to go with the mirror scene on Katanga's boat. When she wipes that mirror down and smacks Indy and he lets out that yellow pain only for her to <laughs> say, you say something? There's never been a single time where I've watched this movie, and trust me, I've watched this a lot since it was released. There's never been a single time I haven't laughed out loud at that scene. <laughs> that is great as well. Yeah, definitely. Right. Um, yeah, my favourite line, I've already mentioned it, but it's definitely... And again, there's a lot of really great ones that I could have picked, but I went with, I don't know, I'm making this up as I go, because to me, that's the key mission statement of the movie. It's like, that that's Indiana Jones' life. Like He ends up in these really crazy situations. Half of the time he escapes through just dumb luck. <laughs> when you look at it, really, you know. And uh, I just love that he's, you know, he's not a genius who's confident that he's going to come out on top because he's just so bloody better than everybody else it's just he's just making it up as he goes along just trying to plod through and get by so i love that right uh yeah let me just move on then because the next thing would be the audience interaction section where we throw our <clears throat> we throw it open to you listeners and viewers to say what you think of the movie we didn't get a huge response but we have a few on the raiders of the lost ark which i thought would be more popular as, as a famous movie but never mind um, so over on Facebook, uh, mostly uh, to DK, we have a few people who said things. Rick Cowling says, you know, Indy makes little impact on the plot. Everything that happens probably would happen anyway. Wink. Yeah, we saw the Big Bang Theory. Um, Roger Godfrey says, how did the bad guys get the Ark onto the submarine? It's bigger than the hatch. Cue the Joel gif. Uh, Robert Lund says, Pat Roach and Damon Elliott, need I say more? Planes, sober Nazis, horses, wrath of God, smoking, indigenous tribes, mummies, snakes, dates, actors having the shits, and melting faces to name but a few. What's not to like? A demonstration that Lucas is actually shit at scripts, but good actor and director can make magic. So, yeah. Uh, where else have I got stuff? Over on... Uh, Twitter, I had one response from Thomas Labanick. Not a long one, but he just says, love it, great movie, action, pace. On our Discord, Jamie, or JA Productions, says, the second best indie movie behind Last Crusade. It's a classic for a reason. It's fun, exciting, and it's got an engaging adventure. Yeah, and a few more just from friends of mine who uh, contributed or, or chipped in. Michael Stark gives the movie five stars and says, this is a perfect movie. Senan Film, give it four stars and says, amazing Spielberg film, one of the best trilogies of all time, amazing music by John Williams as always. Clacker the Geek gives it four and a half stars and says, I hadn't watched this in about five years, still absolutely fantastic fun adventure stuff, incredible characters, great action, awesome music, intriguing mystery, over the top but brilliant gore, an ace lead with Harrison Ford, wonderful craftsmanship from Spielberg with regards to the set design, cinematography, etc. And overall, simply just so fun. Yeah, can't disagree with any of that. Michael Vincent also gave it five stars and says, I was unfortunately late to one of the best action-adventure picks of all time. Spielberg was so skilled back then that everything he touched turned to pure gold. Uh, will Templar, who you will know fairly well from the podcasts over the years, he gives the movie four and a half stars and says, it's got some problems on the whole, but the second half of the film is so exceptional that I cannot possibly be harsher than this. Brilliant. From a filmmaking perspective, this cannot have been made better. Perhaps some sharpened choreography, but still. Brilliant. Just brilliant. Right. So that's all of the audience's thoughts and what they had to say about the movie. So it's up to us now to uh, to give our own conclusions and scores. And again, we always come to the guest first. Stephen, are you comfortable giving us a conclusion and a score out of five? Out of five? Ooh. Well, five stars. So, yeah. I mean, you can you can give halves or if you want to be as uh, awkward as Sandra is, she often gives like 0. 0.3691 <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> uh, I'll go with five. It's a classic. 
awesome. And uh, yeah, any other thoughts or just a classic? <laughs> you can put on any time for anybody, and you know that's why it's a classic. That's why it deserves five stars, really. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I can see why you would say it. Yeah, it, it's also it's also one of those films that I think you can watch on like a Saturday or a Sunday afternoon and you know it so well that you don't have to necessarily focus. You can just kind of enjoy it and let it roll over you. It's got that adventure film vibe to it, which is uh, it's always good. Well, we appear to have lost DK. So in the hope that he's going to come back and the technical difficulties won't last that long, I'll quickly, I'll say quickly, but I'll give my conclusion and score. Conclusion won't be that quick. It's quite long-winded. Uh, so... Um, Sorry about that. Yeah, that's fair enough. Well, um, I was, uh, yeah, I was going to give my conclusion because we were in the middle of it. So I may as well carry on and then we can come to you for yours, DK, and hope that the, the internet holds out. So, uh, like I said, apologies, it's a little long-winded. I said, firstly, let me say that I balk slightly at the common idea that this is a perfect, flawless movie, the greatest thing ever made. It's not even the best Indiana Jones movie, though it's close. It's not even the best Spielberg movie, though it's up there. It's not quite even the best Lucasfilm movie. But enough about what it's not. Let's talk about all the stuff that it is. It's Harrison Ford's best character and one of his best performances. It's wonderfully humorous with a love interest so well drawn she's practically a co-lead. It has a fleshed out world of believable, wonderful supporting characters. It's a near perfectly paced and edited thrilling adventure movie. It has directorial flourish in spades, iconic shots, set pieces, dialogue, action and some outright genius plotting. There's almost no fat or wasted time, and in the age of movies becoming increasingly bloated, it's refreshing that it gallops along at exactly the speed of plot and clocks in under two hours. Okay, it's not perfect, but that's a high bar. Just because it doesn't engage me personally that extra mile doesn't mean I disagree with anyone who says it is, though. And despite my cheekily misleading intro, there's a level of mastery and sheer cinematic entertainment here that won't allow me to go less than my score of 4.5 out of 5. So, yeah, uh, that's mine and Steve's thoughts, a 5 and a 4.5. DK, over to you, what are your conclusion and score for the movie? Uh, well, for, I mean, first of all, I want to apologise to Steve. If I've done a lot of talking this time, it's only because I'm <laughs> kind of passionate about this. It's no problem. Actually, okay. For Steve, he's actually been talking a lot. He's usually laconic. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'll talk when I want to, yeah. <laughs> uh, mine... Uh, Problems aside, for an adventure movie, I'm simply going to go with my letterbox review and say one thing. Perfection. Five out of five. Okay, fair enough. Uh, so, uh, I, I'm now looking like a jerk as the only one that didn't go with a five out of five, but hopefully uh, understandable reasoning. But yeah, certainly we can add those together, divide by three, to give us a final podcast score. Again, this has to be one of our highest scores of all time. Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, if you want to call it that, uh, comes with a final score of 4.83 out of 5, which I think, yeah, very close to a 5, understandably so, and not something, as I said, that I would definitely dispute, although my personal tastes lean more towards Last Crusade. And so the last word has to go to that seemingly never-ending debate. I know there are some people that might be outliers that might like Temple of Doom just to be weird or even weirder people like Lady Vianne, shout out if you're listening, who like Kingdom of the Crystal Skull for unfathomable reasons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't even ask. <laughs> I don't know what she's thinking, but, you know, I, I just, I can't even think 
about that. <laughs> you know, that's just too weird. Um, but yeah, so the debate always, my point would be, comes down to Raiders of the Lost Ark versus Last Crusade, which is better. And it's gone back and forth a lot over the years. And I've even kind of flip-flopped on which one I think I prefer over the other over the years. So I have to ask you guys, you, you know my opinion? I need to watch that now, actually. That is literally what I'm going to do tonight. I want to watch Last Crusade. <laughs> that's fair enough. Yeah, you should. It's good. <clears throat> well, watch them all. <clears throat> Last Crusade is obviously where I would plant my flag nowadays, but um, what about you two? Which would you say is the best of the two? Steve, we'll come to you first. Um, well, I'll start to give your readers five stars. I'm going to have to watch Last Crusade to remind myself of exactly how good it is or not. I recall it being a good movie, though, so I can't really say I'm going to watch it tonight. I might try and put a comment in there when you launch this video as to what my Ooh. actual answer is. Yeah, because you don't have a letterbox or anything, do you? So you can just comment on the video. That's uh, cool, right? I'm intrigued to know actually what you think watching it now after probably, like me, it's probably been about five or six years since you last saw it as well. So, mm, yeah. It's been a while, yeah. And, uh, DK, do we even need to ask which you would favour of the two? <laughs> yeah, weirdly enough, the only other one in the series that has five stars on my letterbox other than this is Last Crusade. I <laughs> do think that... When I watch them in order, they flip, they change positions uh, for number one. I do think Last Crusade is infinitely more rewatchable than Raiders. But as a straight adventure flick, I think Raiders just pips it. And I think that's kind of my personal favourite. But that could yeah. be because I, you know, I've grown up with this. Yeah. That makes sense, definitely. As I said, the fact is, they are almost inseparable, so it's a bit of a cheeky question, yeah. but I just thought it would be a fun way to end the episode. So, yeah, like I said, I wouldn't dispute anybody that said either one of them. Temple of Doom, less so, and Crystal Skull. Vianne's out on an island on her own with that one. I don't know what that's about. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> so that would conclude this uh, this week's episode. Thank you so much to DK for bringing your passion, as always, and uh, your clear love for the movie to this episode. Thank you. Thank you. I just love talking about stuff like this. That's cool. Thank you, Stephen, for uh, being here and bringing your own personal uh, opinions and takes on the, on the film. Always welcome. Thank you for having me along. Yeah, you're, you're welcome anytime. And uh, yeah, thanks to me for being here. I'll thank myself. Why not? You can always find us via our various links on the social media sites and things that are on our link tree, which is always linked in the description of this video. Uh, or you can just look around and find us on the internet via our name, the Silver Screen Podcast. Uh, Steve, I'm pretty sure you're not really available anywhere on social media. Is that right? I am that mysterious, yes. <laughs> you find yeah, me on you the are. Facebook page is tough. And I've got yeah. just to make sure. <laughs> you are an enigma of sorts, but I think that's why our audience loves you. Is this your first Silver Screen, by the way? Because I know you've done a couple of tracks, but I can't remember if you've been on a movie one. Uh, yeah, actually, when I was looking back over the format you did this, I found the Star Trek 4 one, the one with the wheels, hmm. uh, <laughs> the review we did of that. But yeah, I think it yeah. is, actually. Awesome. Well, we'll have to have you on again. You were you were good. And again, apologies if we've talked too much over the top of you and stuff, but I know you're a, a man of few words most of the time anyway. So. You're professionals at this. You know the sort of things you want to talk about. I'm happy just to give a, a difference. We're just, no, we're just obnoxious, mate. <laughs> we can be both <laughs> yeah but no it's been great hanging with you guys and just chatting about a good a fantastic movie so do come back and join us again when we'll hopefully be doing the same thing 
I don't have my information in front of me to tell you when it'll be, but I do know it's going to be a little bit of a break while we focus more on the series that's currently running of our Star Trek podcast. Speaking of that, uh, we're doing a Klingon-themed series over there at the moment. Uh, and while we wait to see if I can avoid a nervous breakdown with all of the work that I've been giving myself. Uh, but yeah, we will be back in, let's see, a few weeks. Oh, yeah, we will be back on July the 13th, but I won't be part of it. Uh, will and George Poupart will be taking the reins of the podcast for the first episode without either me or DK. And they're going to be reviewing Mission Impossible Fallout ahead of the first part of Dead Reckoning coming out in cinemas. Uh, we should also have coming up a, a new cult review, which DK has alluded to several times, where we're going to be looking at one of my favorite movies, Flash Gordon. So do stay tuned for that within the next couple of months. And uh, in the meantime, just keep an eye on our socials to see when we're going to be around. And if you are a fan of all things Trek, do subscribe over there and join us there as well. So that's uh, that out of the way. DK, did you want to take over the reins and give our sign-off for this week? <laughs> uh, yes, as the uh, man said. I'll be back. I'll be back. You have been listening to the Silver Screen Podcast, hosted by Michael Wilson and DK. Created, produced, and edited by Michael Wilson. Behind the scenes sections and additional material produced by DK. Music by Timeless Journey. More information can be found at soundcloud.com forward slash timeless journey. Follow the podcast on Instagram at Silver Screen Podcast or look for the Silver Screen Podcast under Facebook groups. Links to all our social media accounts and more are in this episode's description. This podcast is available on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. Just look for Silver Screen, Hit or Miss Star Trek. This has been a Mike's Podcast Production, copyright 2022. Thank you for listening.